Hello and welcome to the Unremembered Days podcast. I'm Nayaz Hashim and I'm joined by Zain Chowdhury. As part of our series answering the question, can we prevent genocide? Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Simon Adams and talking about the responsibility to protect. The responsibility to protect is a global international norm to prevent mass atrocity crimes. After the international community failed to prevent genocides in Bosnia and in Rwanda during the 90s, in 2005, at the UN World Summit, nations from across the world unanimously agreed to the responsibility to protect. The aim was to ensure that the international community never allowed mass atrocity crimes to take place again. The commitment states that all member countries have the responsibility to protect their own population from genocide, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing and war crimes. Crucially, it also establishes that the wider international community has the collective responsibility to help states prevent these atrocities. If a state is failing to protect its population, the international community has the responsibility to work together and to take action. Our guest today, Dr. Simon Adams, is the Executive Director of the Global Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. The Global Centre's mission is to ensure that the responsibility to protect theory is actually practically applied. They research and analyse past case studies of crises, work with the UN and with national governments to help them meet their responsibilities, and seek to create a longer-term international community that can prevent mass atrocities in the future. Dr Adams has worked extensively in South Africa, East Timor, Northern Ireland, Rwanda and several other nations, and is an expert on mass atrocity crimes and international conflict, having written multiple books on the topic. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Adams. Thank you for having me, guys. And just to start, would you be able to um, explain how you ended up working where you are today? Well, I guess, you know, um, it's always interesting, you know, just listening to you guys read out a bit of my bio there, and um, it it seems to have a kind of a logic to it. But um, as I think you guys will discover a few years from now, uh, it doesn't work out that way in real life. So um, it wasn't a kind of a linear progression from high school to, to, to what I do now. But, you know, my family come from Belfast in the north of Ireland. So, and immigrated to the other side of the world to, to Australia. And so I kind of always grew up with a sense of uh, an awareness about issues of conflict and identity and discrimination and so forth. Um, so there was that, I guess, in my background. And then, you know, as a teenager, probably around the age that you guys are now, I got very interested in and very involved with the um, international movement against apartheid in South Africa. And I guess the only thing that kind of made me a little bit different from some of my peers was I actually ended up joining uh, the movement and um training outside the country and then moving to South Africa to participate in the transition from apartheid to democracy during the 1990s. So I guess I was always kind of interested in issues of conflict and identity and how these things kind of fit together. And overlaid with that, I guess, you know, as South Africa was going through this momentum, positive change, you know, just north of South Africa is, of course, Rwanda, which was going through at literally exactly the same time. 
uh, as the election in 1994, this this catastrophic genocide. And I guess that was something that kind of always um, loomed over my kind of experience of living in South Africa in the in the mid 1990s. And of course, if you do your kind of timeline, you can see that this was also at a time when the Yugoslav wars were were at their peak as well. And um, whether living in South Africa and then returning later to Australia, you know, we had a lot of refugees from from uh, the former Yugoslavia. So all of that, I guess, you know, helps explain I, in an, a very kind of weird way why I am the person that I am, I guess, um, some people would say, and that I was kind of drawn to issues of human rights, to issues of identity-based conflicts, and to the absolute worst kind of things that human beings can do to one another and was kind of always looking for possible solutions to that. And, you know, I had an opportunity to work in Rwanda in the years after the, the genocide. And that was the kind of recurring message that I heard from people again and again was where was the rest of the world when literally the worst thing that human beings can do to one another was happening in our country. You know, where was the world when people would say to me, you know, young people who were survivors would say, where was the world when my family was being killed? Where was the world when I was hiding and in fear of my life, you know? And so I, I guess if you add all of that to, together, um, it kind of explains some of the work that I've done in, in different parts of the world. And it led me in a kind of, very roundabout way to eventually becoming the executive director of the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. You mentioned, of course, the genocide in Rwanda and also in the um, in Bosnia, in the former Yugoslavia. So why do you think there was this international failure to react in the right way during the 90s? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, in some ways, we have to go back to the experience of the Second World War and, you know, the promises of never again that were made at the end of the Second World War. But, you know, whether it's in my lifetime or your lifetime, unfortunately, too much of the history of international politics has been a history of again and again. And I, I know that's something that people, everyone kind of says, but you know, when you work in this space, you see it and, and, and you feel the sting um, of history and you feel the kind of the voices of the, of the past, you know, incomprehensibly kind of looking at the world as it is and not understanding why the international community has failed so repeatedly to, to deal with that. I think part of it's kind of a sense of, um, to some people, these places seem very far away and people's lives seem very different from them. You know, I can remember during the 1990s, even though Yugoslavia is you know, kind of in the middle of Europe, you would still hear that from, from people elsewhere in Europe who would say, no, nah, well, you know, it's, Serbs and Croats and Bosniaks are very different from us. And it's like, well, this is like just happening down the road. It's not happening on the other, on the other side of the world. But I think, you know, from that kind of sense of distance can come a sense of indifference um, sometimes to the suffering of others. And I don't think that that is uh, necessarily about ordinary people. I actually find through the work that I do that ordinary people, no matter where they are in the world, tend to have 
pretty high levels of empathy for people on wherever they are in the world who are who are facing adversity and, and atrocities. But at a governmental level, there's always many kind of political arguments about why this won't poll well with voters or why this would be expensive or would be dangerous or would would be some you know something that might endanger somebody's political career so i think unfortunately for too much of the history of the 20th century in particular the default setting was one of inaction when it came to mass atrocities in the world how did the RTP commitment that was adopted in 2005 change the way that the international community dealt with genocide? Yeah, look, I, I think that there's two ways you can, you can look at it. You know, it was never going to be a panacea that was going to fix everything that's broken and wrong in the world. You know, like R2P is not a magical spell that you know, emanated in Hogwarts or something and can just be thrown at any situation and, and fix it. But it was a commitment. It was a commitment by the, at the biggest ever meeting of heads of state and government in the world that they wanted to do better and that they needed to do better, recognizing that, you know, the, the scale of the failure in Rwanda and, and in Srebrenica in 1995. And so I think um, that was a good place to start. And I guess, you know, my job and the job of people who work in this kind of strange area that I work in is to try and hold states to that commitment and to try and make sure that wherever in the world people face the mass grave or the machete or, you know, atrocities that threaten their existence, that that we don't just sit by, that we don't just watch, that we actually um, do all we can as human beings to stop that from happening. And we haven't always been successful, you know, and I think if you look at the period since 2005, um, uh, it's been a very mixed record, but, you know, I would rather, I would rather try and fail than revert to the previous default setting of, not even bothering to try. What does that work look like for you on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, um, so I live here in New York and, you know, in, in normal times when we don't have a, a global pandemic, um, that means we have an office not too far away from the UN in New York and my staff work quite closely with the UN Security Council and do advocacy around situations where we think there needs to be an international response. We also have staff who work on research and monitoring work of various conflicts that, you know, that we keep an eye on. And so if you're familiar at all with our website, you'll see there's a populations at risk page, which, which goes through you know, various parts of the world and the threats that are facing people. And we also have an office in Geneva where we work with the Human Rights Council. And we have a kind of a network of contacts and colleagues and partner organizations um, out in the wider world on, upon whom we rely for information and intelligence and that we use in our advocacy efforts. You just mentioned the pandemic. I'm curious as to how the influence of the pandemic on the global situation has changed the way 
the international community views genocide currently? Has it become less important due to the pandemic? Um, no, Zaina, I don't think enough attention has been given to it, but I, I don't know that that can be blamed solely on COVID-19. I mean, I think COVID-19 has made everything tougher. We all know that. And I think it's provided some governments, for example, as a, with, with another tool to, to scapegoat people. So, you know, if you look at um, somewhere like Central African Republic, for example, there's been an association between the virus and uh, Muslims. And so, you know, trying to say that the, the, the Muslim section of the population is responsible for COVID. And you could extrapolate from that, you know, it's been used by other authoritarian governments to kind of as a pretext for human rights abuses or for restricting people's uh, human rights. So I think that is true. I think there's a bigger problem, though. I mean, I think the problem that you're kind of alluding to is reflected in the fact that in the year 2021, we have about 80.3 million people around the world who are currently displaced by persecution, conflict and atrocities. That's the highest number since the Second World War. Well, COVID-19 didn't create that crisis. That was a crisis that was created by human beings and by, I would say, a failure of governments to consistently uphold their responsibility to protect. How do you think we can go about changing that? So obviously that's a huge part of your work, convincing governments to actually start caring and start acting. Yeah, and I, as a, I mean, I think that that's kind of part of our job, right? Like we're, we're the annoying people that knock on people's doors and phone them up and send them emails and they're in their ear constantly raising issues. And I think that the whole idea of the responsibility to protect, to go back to what I said earlier is it's not a, it's not a magic three words or, or two letters and a, and a number in between it, it you know, it, it's a commitment. So it's our kind of job to hold states to that commitment. One of the reasons why I wanted to come on this show and thank you so much for inviting me is because for an old hack like me, you know, of 53 years of age, you know, to see young people like yourselves who are interested in the world and who, are, you know, on the one hand, appalled by what you see in the world, but on the other hand, inspired to try and make a change in your own lives and in your own communities. That's how we get change. That's how we get the little ripples that can become a tidal wave and really lead to big changes. What kind of actions can governments take if they do start caring to protect these populations and to respond to genocide? Well, well I think that, you know, it depends always on the specifics of the case. And then I think, you know, obviously you guys uh, realize that, I mean, there's no kind of uh, genocide action pack that we can just kind of pop open and there's a cape and, you know, three good tools in there and they're going to fix everything. It's very context specific, but I think the reverse is also true is that too often in the world, you see a situation like, um, in Myanmar, for example, around the Rohingya population in Rakhine State. And, you know, I, we worked on that issue before, during, and after the genocide. 
where too many states will say, look, it's just too difficult. China has a veto at the UN Security Council. They'll defend Myanmar there. Myanmar's military is vicious and is resistant to sanctions. So there's just not much we can do. Well, I just never, ever, ever, ever accept the politics of there's just not much we can do. I think there are always actions that states can take on a bilateral level, states that things that regional organizations can do, and ultimately things that the international community can do overall. So for example, at the risk of giving a, a very long answer, you know, there was no action in relation to the Rohingya genocide in um, at the time. And afterwards, working with our partners at the Global Justice Center, we started to develop the idea that we could get a case to go to the International Court of Justice and to hold Myanmar accountable for genocide at the International Court of Justice. But we didn't, it, we couldn't do that. It, it requires a state to do it. And, you know, I, I spent probably over a year, maybe a year and a half, speaking to governments, you know, going and seeing particular governments, I won't name names, but including governments that are openly committed to human rights and international justice. We couldn't get anybody to take that case. But it took, you know, one person, the, the Minister of Justice of the Gambia, who visited a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh and was deeply moved by the experience and decided that he was going to be the person who would do it. And so it was a great honor and privilege to work with the Gambia and, you know, to help see that case go through and go to the International Court of Justice. It's ongoing, of course, but it just is a great example that, if not for one individual, that case never would have happened. But, you know, we are all one individual. So in a situation where people do listen to the early warning signs, the polarization of society, exclusion of minority groups, what can be done on the ground in order to turn the tide and prevent a genocide from occurring? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a simple answer to that, because again, I think it's so context specific, you know, and I, but I, I do think that um, you know, in, in all the kind of situations that we, that we work on, there are always people on the ground who are providing early warning, who can identify the problem and who are calling out for assistance. You know, I think sometimes in the world, we, we think of mass atrocities only when they reach a particular scale and scope and a magnitude where it starts to become a question of, well, should we militarily intervene or do we send a UN, an armed UN peacekeeping mission or is there somebody we could do an airstrike on which would stop this? And my view is always if we get to that discussion, we've already failed. We've failed in some fundamental way because it means that we failed often years earlier to listen to the early warning, to listen to the voices of people who were, were, were raising these concerns. Um, and we failed to work with, with people in a constructive way to push society in, a, in another direction. And I mean, that's certainly been my experience, whether it be in the, you know, Rwanda, East Timor or anywhere else is, you know, prevention is hard work.
do you think there's an example of um, a situation where responsibility to protect was implemented and it did go to plan or as close to plan as possible? You know, I, I do get asked that question a fair bit. And let me let me just say this. There is 193 member states of the United Nations. Let, let's just be like clear. Every day <laughs> it, the, that there's not a genocide or crimes against humanity or war crimes in the vast and overwhelming majority of those countries, those states are upholding their responsibility to protect. It doesn't mean those states are perfect. It doesn't mean that they're, they don't have failings and shortcomings um in terms of their policies or even in terms of their human rights work we, you know again it's always about trying to lift the bar and lift people's eyes to to the possibility of of um, a better sense of human rights um, protection but every day most states are doing that you know it's the small percentage of countries that are either things are bad and are going in an even worse direction or where atrocities are already happening and underway. Those are the ones we have to deal with from a kind of, that's the pointy end of the stick. That's the, the difficult issues to, to, to actually resolve and to get an international response to. And yes, yeah, certainly I think, you know, since 2005, there have been a number of examples of either preventive action, whether that be in somewhere like Kenya, and I would say arguably in Gambia, um, or whether there's been kind of belated international action, which actually halted atrocities. You could say Cote d'Ivoire is a good example of that. Or, or whether there has been examples where um, atrocities are happening and there was an international response, things haven't been resolved, but certainly they would be much, much worse if there hadn't been international action. Central African Republic, South Sudan, spring to mind as two obvious cases. And then, you know, of course, there are cases where the international community has just absolutely failed. And Syria would be an example of that. Myanmar would be an example of that. So I, I think, again, we return to the kind of the point we departed from that, unfortunately, the world is a complex and, and messy place. But I certainly think, you know, I've seen with my own eyes and there are people who are contacts on my iPhone, which is sitting right here beside me, who would not be alive today if not for human rights norms and laws like the responsibility to protect. And just building on from that, how um, would the international community combat um, violations of human rights in places with huge geopolitical power like China? Yeah, uh, I mean, so the Uyghur situation is the obvious one to to kind of you know discuss in relation to China. I mean, I, I think our position is, of course, that international law is not just applicable to the states that choose to abide by it; it's applicable to all states. The responsibility to protect applies to all states in all places at all times. There's no kind of, we're just gonna press the pause on those responsibilities or those human rights for the moment while we you know, do something. And that means it applies to China, which is obviously a superpower. But let me say this, it, 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 it changes the way, it changes the, the sorts of tools that you can try and use. 
So knowing that China has a veto at the UN Security Council, when we started working on the Uyghur issue, we thought the chances of getting something to come to the UN Security Council are next to nothing. So, okay, what other, what other kind of pressure points, what other tools and, and measures are available to us? And we did realize that, you know, China cares a lot about its international reputation. It cares a lot about its status and the way that it pre presents itself in the, in the world. And that what we needed to do was to work with our you know, other partner human rights organizations to try and work with Uyghur organizations as well to raise awareness about what was happening on the ground and to increase the pressure on the Chinese to, to moderate their behavior. And so that's been a slow and steady kind of climb to make that happen. But we are seeing now that First of all, there's much more awareness. And second of all, governments, including the government of the country where you guys live in the UK, has started to apply sanctions on goods coming from Xinjiang that are made with forced Uyghur labor. Um, that's happening in the United States and other countries as well. And I think we're not where we would like to be, but um, it's certainly not the case that China is getting away with a genocide against the Uyghurs without anybody saying anything or any action taking place. But um, what are the challenges associated with um, implementing RTP, like the constraints of international law and the power of the ruling government in that country? I guess the idea of sovereignty as well. Yeah, I mean, look, we believe that sovereignty entails responsibility, that sovereignty is not a license to kill, obviously. And I think that's the starting point for, you know, ideas around the responsibility to protect. But I think that we're living through a time in which human rights laws and norms are under attack, not just R2P, you know, more generally. Um, when authoritarianism is on the rise in a number of countries where the international system seems woefully inadequate for the challenges that it faces, whether it be from not just in terms of mass atrocities and that global displacement crisis of, of more than 80 million people that I spoke about before, but other issues as well, like how well is the international community responding to climate change? Greatest existential threat of our times. I mean, I think most of us would agree it's not doing a fantastic job in responding to that. So I think all of those are in obstacles and impediments. But again, I, I think that, you know, if you're involved in human rights work, you have to have a thick skin. You have to work from the idea that you're going to face far more defeats than you're going to have victories. And you have to be dedicated to the to the long haul because you know i i am somebody who believes very strongly in what uh, dr martin luther king jr said about the arc of history that it kind of bends towards justice but it's our job to grab hold of that arc and bend it a little bit more or do everything we can to arrive at the that point a little bit quicker i suppose on a human level it must be very difficult and I guess, exhausting, constantly being met with these obstacles. I mean, I, I do get asked that from time to time. And, you know, I, I think I've got a fairly high um, threshold for things that would deeply disturb um, 
other people. I mean, in our work, we obviously see either in person or on our computer screens, human beings doing the worst things imaginable to, to one another. And so part of the solution to that is that you have to ad adopt a fairly forensic kind of approach to it. You know, I, I look at pictures of mass atrocities the way that doctors look at pictures of car crashes, trying to understand what's going on, trying to understand how this can be used potentially as evidence, trying to understand how we stop what's happening. But yeah, on, on a basic human level, of course, it weighs on you. And I think it, it weighs on you in particular in times of crisis. I mean, at the moment, as you would all know, there was a military coup in Myanmar on the 1st of February. Situation there is very, very bad. People are facing crimes against humanity. And every single day I get emails and I get social media messages and communications and other sorts of ways from people on the ground who are on the one hand sharing pictures and information about what's happening and on the other hand are pleading for their lives and don't understand why the international community is not doing more to save and protect them so i have to take that to bed with me each night when i go to sleep and wake up with it in the morning and try to get back into the ring and try to make a difference. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on your experiences in the numerous countries you visited in terms of the situation on the ground and the volatility of the situation. Yeah, I mean, I uh, not just the work I've done at the Global Centre, but the, the work I've done prior to that means that I've, I've travelled quite extensively in the world and I guess I've... I've, I've uh, been to places that aren't exactly renowned tourist destinations. Let's just put it, put it that way. And of course, in all of that, I've faced some of the challenges that come for anybody who works in inactive conflict zones, um, whether that be exposure to tropical diseases of which I have had my fair share um, or being shot at from time to time, which you try not to take personally, um, but, you know, can be a little bit of a occupational hazard if you're working in an active conflict zone. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't really like to kind of emphasize that part of it because, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to glamorize that in any way or or make it kind of an adventure story kind of existence because it, it it doesn't feel like that to to live it and the the other side of it is that you know i've been very privileged in my life to meet people who have seen and experienced the the worst things in life but have transcended it and who have continue to be pillars for human rights and people who have helped transform their communities. And that's what makes me get out of bed in the morning. That's what makes me do this work is not a kind of uh, false bravado or a kind of, you know, um, Indiana Jones of 
atrocity prevention or something like that. But um, it's it's that sense of connection that you feel with ordinary people in different parts of the world who you've had the privilege of meeting and you think, well, they're doing their bit in their communities. And so I need to use the advantages that have been given to me in life to to amplify their voices and to do everything I can to be an agent of change. So we've spoken a lot about short-term responses to genocide. And in terms of more longer-term prevention, how important do you think that education, especially education of young people around the world is? I think it's hugely important. I mean, look, I worked in South Africa and I lived there for, for two periods. One during the 1990s, during the transition, as I mentioned, transition to democracy. And I lived there for a second time um, from 2008 to 2010. And the difference between 1995 and 2008 was huge. And it showed what, even in the space of a generation, can be done um, in terms of dealing with issues of, of truth, justice, and reconciliation. And so that's not to say that race relations in South Africa are a, a, a complete kind of Lion King, Kumbaya, you know, rainbows and pixie dust kind of world, but they're immeasurably better than they were in the 1990s. And there's been a kind of generational mindset about what it means to be South African, about the connections that people have with one another, about coming to terms with a past that was based on segregation and human rights abuses and trying to build a better society. Um, for the next generation. And so having seen those sorts of things with my own eyes, whether it be in South Africa or whether it be in East Timor or uh, the North of Ireland, where my, my own family come from, you know, I, I definitely have tremendous faith in the ability of, of young people to look beyond the problems that, you know, our generation has created in the world, come up with new solutions and to kind of move beyond the barriers and stereotypes. And, and by the way, I'm a father. So I have three young kids who are constantly, and I mean constantly kind of interrogating me and pushing me to be a better human being. So whether it's, you know, around issues that I would say my generation just never really thought of in a proper way. So whether it be around LGBTQ issues, or whether it be around issues, uh, other kinds of issues in society. You know, I think the Black Lives Matter in the United States of America has been tremendous. And I know it's also been in other parts of it, but it's been tremendous for challenging, you know, uh, white people's, and I should say to listeners, I am a white person, <laughs> but challenging white people's kind of sense of themselves in their society, unchecked balances and all those kinds of things. So I think, yeah, you know, God bless the youth because God knows uh, us old people have screwed it up enough. So we're relying on you now to fix it. No pressure. Yeah, none at all. And um, building on the concept of prevention, um, as someone such as yourself who's worked extensively with the international community 
are you um optimistic that in the future we will live in a world without um crimes against humanity yeah i mean uh, somewhat optimistic yeah i mean as i said before i think the arc of history does bend towards justice and that means a world in which people are, are not killed for who they are you know uh, for some sense of identity whether that be religious ethnic or or whatever i i do think that is the case but i also am realistic enough to know that we're nowhere near um that yet and i think around prevention i think the problem at the moment is that a lot of governments talk about prevention um because it's they're nice words to say you know where we support prevention not intervention or we support you know, we, we want to prevent these things before they get too bad but prevention is actually tricky in the real world it means it means actually listening to early warning it means listening to the voices on the ground or the tremors that one feels that are kind of signifiers of human rights abuses and violations and it means responding to them and that requires intestinal fortitude on the behalf of individuals inside government it requires people speaking up and standing up and again you know so much of kind of my own work and my own observations in life revolve around the idea of of upstanders you know of of not being a bystander of not being somebody who just says this is somebody else's responsibility um but of being an upstander for human rights yourself and i think that there's an onus on each and every one of us to be upstanders in our own life whether it's around racism or sexism or anything else and if we do that then yes i do think that we can create not only societies that are better for us to to live in but also societies that are better at preventing atrocities around the world that's a great way of thinking about it i know that a lot of the work that the global center does is involved in creating this long-term network in time um i think is it called focal points in turn inside governments right. in order to yeah. create this long-term prevention network how how does that work essentially yeah um so about 10 or 12 years ago um staff who were working at the global center kind of had this idea that and i guess this goes back to the idea of individual responsibility and the importance of having um advocates and agents inside governments who will stand up and be you know people to advocate for human rights and so the idea was what if we could get governments who are committed to these ideas and committed to atrocity prevention and committed to human rights to nominate a focal point inside their government um of somebody who would be the person to kind of coordinate um a response and and to provide that early warning if necessary and be a kind of mobilizer inside their own government if necessary and so from that idea we now have um around 60 governments in the world plus the EU plus the organization of american states which is the regional organization for 
uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, who have all appointed an R2P focal point uh, inside the government. The UK government has one. And so our job, I guess, the Global Centre acts as secretariat for that body and, and tries to coordinate, um, feed information to people, share information across the network and try to mobilise appropriate responses where we can. And do you think that's what's going to be essential, I guess, on the path towards this society without mass atrocities, these international networks, this international will, both in governments and ordinary populations, to actually act, to care to be these upstanders you spoke about? Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't think it's any one thing. I mean, if this was a test that you had to do on your... um. I don't know what it is in the UK. I mean, I, I come from Australia, so it's high school certificate in Australia. But if this was a test on your high school certificate of like, how do we stop atrocities in the world? A, global network of R2P focal points. B, civil society action. Uh, C, um, individual upstanders, you know, around the world. D, political will. You could keep just numbering down. I don't think it's it's any one of those it's it's definitely all of the above for the average viewer listening what can they do in their day-to-day life to be to combat genocide or is it just the question of being aware of these issues and being conscious of them yeah no like that's a that's a good question zane and i think it's an it's a necessary question because you know, my whole life has kind of been defined by my own personal political activism. And I, I would never want to encourage people to just be spectators. And, and it doesn't mean that every person out there or any every person listening has to become um, an activist around Myanmar or an activist around um ending conflict in the Congo or an activist around this, that issue. But I think what we've seen through history is that active and energized citizens are the decisive element that leads to change. So yeah, my plea would be that very basic plea of it's the same thing we say about racism. It's the same thing we say about sexual harassment. You know, it's about, having the courage to speak up and having the courage to be the person who becomes the circuit breaker. And it's not always easy, right? Um, It actually takes a little bit of courage on a personal level sometimes to speak up. But I think the more that you try to be an upstander in your own personal life, I think the more that it leads you down kind of avenues of inquiry and finding out about, about different issues in the world and different issues in our own society. And so I would certainly encourage that because, yes, I think that the only way we get to the kind of society that I aspire to and I, I can tell that you guys aspire to is that if we make more upstanders. So, you know, I'm, I'm dedicated to being an upstander in my own life I I can see that you guys are in your lives too. Well, it's all of our job to to make more upstanders. Thank you. I think that's a I think that's a really profound note to end this on.
So um, thank you to Dr. Adams for your time. It's been really interesting and very, I think, important for our listeners. You guys have to stop calling me Dr. Adams. I think the only person who calls me Dr. Adams is my mom when she's trying to impress other other pensioners. You know, it's it's just Simon. All right. Well, thank you, Simon, for your time. No, thank you, guys. It's been great. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Unremembered Days. We'll be back soon with another interview with an expert about genocide prevention. It will be available on all major podcast platforms. Check our Instagram at Unremembered Days for more updates.